0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Mastering Engineer Scott Hull. First of all, the latest streaming rates across all of the various streaming platforms. You'll probably be surprised with what pays the most. And remember that these payout numbers. kind of an average. You can have two artists that have identical stream counts, and they'll have varying payouts because of a lot of factors that we'll go into in a little bit. First of all, number one for payouts at about 2.7 cents per stream. Believe it or not, it's Xbox Music. Behind that is Rhapsody at about 1.7 cents per stream. Title is behind that, at about 1.3 cents per stream. Then it goes way down to Apple Music at almost 8 tenths of a cent for each stream. Amazon Music comes after that at about 7.4 tenths of a cent. Deezer is about 6.2 tenths of a cent. Google, 6.1. Spotify is a lot lower than you might think. It's just about 4 tenths of a cent per stream. Pandora is way down there, and we'll talk about why in a second, but they're at a little more than a tenth of a cent, basically 1.34 tenths. And YouTube, wow, about half that. They're at 0.00074 cents per stream. Now, if we look at the market share based on streams, we find that Spotify is number one at about 47, almost 48% of the market. After that comes Pandora at about 21% of the market. Then it really drops down. Apple Music comes after that at 10.5% of the market. After that is YouTube at 8.4% of the market. And then Google Play at 2.4% of the market. And then it really drops down from there. So basically what we have is Spotify and then Pandora, then Apple Music and sort of everybody else after that. Okay, so why are there different payouts per stream? Well, the biggest thing is how many tiers are there? There's a subscription tier where people pay, and then there's the free tier, which is ad-supported. So the ad-supported tier pays far less than what the subscription tier pays. So therefore, if most of your streams are coming from the free tier, then you're getting paid less. The next thing would be the country where your streams are coming from. Now, of course, it's nine ninety nine in the United States and a lot of the bigger countries in the world, but you'll find that China and Russia and some countries in South America and Africa, where people are only paying like $2 per month. And of course, they're paying in less, so the stream is worth less. Then there's the total stream count. So what happens is basically There's a whole pot of these streams that go in, and you're paid primarily on market share. So it all depends how many streams are in this big pot per country. And then the final thing, and this is what most artists and musicians and people that are kind of critical of the whole thing don't really think about, and that's the deal that you have with your record label and publishing. So don't forget that if they're taking 50% or more of what you're making, Then you may be generating a pretty good amount of money, but the fact of the matter is, it's not really all going in your pocket. So that's the streaming rates for right now. Of course, it changes every year, it's very fluid, but this is what we know, at least for 2021. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now here's something that's pretty disturbing: bands are disappearing. Yeah, most of us that are listening grew up on bands and played in them, I'm sure. But guess what? There's fewer and fewer of them. Just go drive around your neighborhood and listen to how many garage bands you hear. Bet you don't hear any. (laughs) And it's not like it used to be where there might be three or four that'd be playing. Mm, Hardly one now. But there's actually more definitive ways to look at this. If you look at the Billboard Global 100, there are only five out of the top 100 that are bands. Same thing with the U.S. Top 100. And these bands are Maroon 5, Fleetwood Mac, Black Eyed Peas, Awesome City Club, and BTS. BTS is a boy band, so I don't know if you want to include them or not. And Black Eyed Peas aren't really players, so there you go. There's even fewer still. Festivals are the same where you don't find bands that are headlining festivals anymore. So, there's a number of reasons for this. One is it's a whole lot easier to become a solo performer. Anyone that's ever tried to start a band knows how difficult it is to find musicians that have the same vision and are willing to stick it out, especially during the tough times. So, it's a whole lot easier to just do it yourself, especially if you already have a lot of ideas. Now you can get those ideas out without having to rely on other people. It's a whole lot cheaper as well. You don't need expensive instruments like amplifiers and sound systems you don't have to hire rehearsal space and it sure is faster to make stuff than it is getting a band to sound good everything is faster in terms of decisions as well a solo performer can make any kind of decision on their own where you know what it's like with the band sometimes things can drag on and on and on and (laughs) you'll never actually get to the end of it so that's another nail in the coffin of bands A really big thing here is the fact that so many musicians today have grown up on rap and pop. So already they're thinking about solo artists because that's what they've learned from. That's what they've listened to. It's all about being a solo artist. So of course that's what they strive to be rather than being in a band. And also being on a band you have to get on the road to build a following where you can just go on Ableton and crank something out if you have an idea and you're a musician. There's yet one other big thing here, and that's labels would rather sign solo artists than they would sign bands. Solo artists are less of a hassle. It's a whole lot easier. Labels have figured this out, so they're more than happy to have solo artists. So bands are in trouble. It sure would be nice if there are more of them, and hopefully the trend will turn around again, but as of now, bands are a dying breed. My guest this week is Scott Hull, who started his illustrious career in mastering at New York's famed Master Disc Studios. Rising from an assistant to chief engineer, Scott then took a series of jobs at some of New York's most excellent mastering facilities, including Classic Sound and the Hit Factory, before striking out on his own. He returned to Master Disc in 2008, this time as the owner, where he continues to cut digital and vinyl masters for a wide variety of artists. Scott has mastered records for Sting, Bruce Springsteen, Steely Dan, John Mayer, Bob Dylan, Miles Davis, and hundreds more. During the interview, we spoke about Scott's experience assisting the legendary Bob Ludwig, interpreting what a client means and describing what they hear, why the tools of mastering don't always work as well these days, getting used to different rooms, and much more. I spoke with Scott from a studio in Peekskill, New York. Tell me how you got started in the music business. Were you a player first, a musician?
1: I uh, was a trombone player, played through school, played through college, got a performance degree on trombone, but also was in a uh, recording technology program um, in Sony Frenonia. And um, I had some really good luck there. I had a really good professor, David Moulton, who went on to you know, do a lot of great things in the biz as far as education, um, maybe one of the best. And, um, uh of his of his ilk um uh he was there my four all four years that i was there and uh as just sort of fate would have it one day i walked into his office and asked uh uh, you know maybe i should be doing an internship you think and um and he looked at me kind of funny realized he just got and then told me he'd just gotten off the phone with bob Ludwig, who was looking for a summer intern and so he said well what about master and i'm like well why not um Hadn't really, you know, been planning on mastering as a um, long-term career. It was, uh, it was an option. After the internship, I realized, uh, you know, what what amazing, rarefied air to be hanging around in all day, every day. So, you know, by the by the time my my third uh, third favorite, uh, <laughs> most favorite uh, producer, engineer, or artist walked through the door, I realized that's kind of where I wanted to be. Um, so then the internship led to a uh, an assistantship and uh digital oh, recording was just coming around the corner within the next year or so after i started to put it short really everyone else was busy cutting vinyl and i was the guy who could take the manuals home and figure out how all of the digital stuff worked <laughs> and then i ended up teaching it uh frankly kind of teaching it to all the other guys and helping them use it um so i was the digital whiz kid you know in 1984. <laughs> 1985.
0: <laughs> did they teach you how to cut vinyl as well?
1: Yeah. Well, that's all we did. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't actively, ter- all that actively involved in vinyl, other than assisting uh, on a day-to-day basis while vinyl was being cut, setting up the lathe, setting up the tape machine. Certainly being directly involved, and had gotten to the point where I was cutting some of my own things um, and cutting this, uh, some things with supervision. But um, yeah, I mean, just. It, you learned it more by being there um through osmosis and um and i did i did learn a ton about this cutting um in those earlier days um uh because that's that's what everything was about was getting it on vinyl
0: you had bob ludwig as a mentor which is fantastic it doesn't get any better than that <laughs> do you think that it sped up the process for you because mastering is one of those things where the, it's an accumulation of experience, but being around
1: him, did it speed everything up? Well, it wouldn't be my, my, my perception, um, uh, I suppose, uh, depending on who, you know, what, what an alternate uh, path might have been. Uh, it was honestly, it was close to 10 years of day-to-day working in mastering, that uh, on mastering projects, uh, before I really was officially soloing on my own. Of course I had done, I had mastered records. I had brought some things in on my own. Um, I had gone out and fished for some of my own clients, but to actually have my name on the door and my name in the schedule book and had, you know, booking time on par with the other engineers and masters, that was that was a 10 year, literally a 10 year haul. Kind of had to wait for someone to vacate a chair, to be quite frank. 93, when Bob left MasterDisc in New York and, and went to Gateway, that was, that was the opportunity that I, um, needed to uh, be able to carve my own niche. Um, I, I some really big shoes and carve my own niche at the same time. I had an interesting, um, and I think a unique experience there is um, because I wasn't tied down to a particular room or an engineer and I was assisting really all the engineers at different times that master I got to see really how everybody approached the project, the, the process. So in that respect, I, I saw and um, experienced a lot of different ways to do the same thing. And, and I think that was well, part of what I enjoyed about you know, uh, launching uh, going out on my own was was figuring out what, what Scott would do. Because <laughs> I knew what Howie would do, and I knew what Bob would do, and I knew what Tony would do, and so I had to figure out what I wanted.
0: One of the things I ask every mastery engineer is, how long did it take you before you felt, yeah, I got this, I feel comfortable?
1: Ooh, um Tomorrow, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, every day is a surprise. Every every day is somebody else's baby um, being born. Um, I, I know it. Maybe it sounds sort of like the academic answer, but it's um, it's honestly. Some days are very humbling. Finding out that uh, you're not you're not necessarily the brightest ears in the room, <laughs> and you've got to figure out how uh, how someone else is hearing it or what they're hearing. I particularly resist the, the kind of general temptation to just to, to uh, say, well, it's not in there. You're hearing things. Or I can't be, I've, I've been proven wrong so many times by people that were, you know, were so um, much more clearly understood the music and the, their particular production than I did quite often. There's sometimes another reason, there's sometimes another explanation for the noises, but to say just because I, I, I'm not hearing them the way my clients are, doesn't mean that they're not there. Uh, so, so um, that was one thing that uh, uh, really kind of mattered to to me. was to always listen really carefully, not only to what the speakers were saying, but what my clients were saying.
0: So, is this a taste thing you're talking about, or, or technical?
1: Um, definitely the creative, the the interpersonal uh, issues, and creative are really the things that I had to that. Um, I, not to struggle with, but the constant evolution of being a good listener, both to the speakers and to the clients, what they needed. And sometimes what they would say and what they wouldn't say or couldn't say, um, some very notable um, uh, producers and artists that I've worked with had very, very interesting ways of describing what they wanted or what they were hearing. And so I had to try to interpret that, create a sort of a, a truth table or a, a reference list of, <laughs> what does this person mean when he says uh, crunchy <laughs> what does someone else mean when they say punchy you know it's it just it becomes uh, that becomes the, uh, the the challenge really um I'd love to I'd love to try to prove things to you know to prove, you know not only what I'm hearing but to reference other things um and go on but ultimately comes down to how the client's feeling about something and so you just have to you have to always go with that
0: so, you worked at MasterDisk for 10 years before you basically got a chair. And then, how long did it take before you became chief engineer?
1: That was a three year or so process, well, maybe a little less. It was the, the, the chief engineer role, um, was more like a chief technology uh, officer, um, at the time because I was a uh, uh, heavily involved in all of the Sonic Solutions uh, rollouts, um, all the all the technology that connected the workstations together, um, training and installing. Um, you know, Sonic Solutions was the the premier workstation at the time. It was the only one that really, you know, kind of knocked the ball out of the park sonically and with a waveform display that was crazy good. Um, and it had a huge learning curve. So really, anybody that came along, who um, came into the into the fault that master just had to had to either you know be trained on it so that was my big role there i think that was the reason why i was um, was was chief engineer there. not so much because i was the chief miller or the or the you know the the the, the biggest name in the book i was uh they all kind of relied on me to well to this to, to one degree or another it really depends on who we're talking about and i'm not trying to take uh, uh, credit for the other guys i just i just know there was that there was a there was a need for somebody that that wasn't um, that was that was doing the, the business for the studio not necessarily for themselves and and that was kind of my role and that's why I had that that title
0: then you left master Disc. why did that happen
1: um things changed um I had been principally involved in Greg calby's coming uh, and success at Master Disc when he came from sterling over to master disc and then his departure back to Sterling uh, left a hole. I had some differences of opinion on a few uh, a few items that uh, I, I just I, I won't share just the name uh, names uh, to protect the uh, the people who are here to, def- to defend them themselves. But uh, some differences of opinion. It, it was becoming stale, and um, it was. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it not only worn out my welcome, but it, uh, it was was going pretty stale with the uh, with the fact that I, I didn't feel like I was uh, achieving or performing at the level that I, I really could because I was um, maybe putting out everyone else's fires and leaving mine ablaze. <laughs> um, I even had occasional clients go to the owner and complain that I was being pulled out of my sessions too often to put out fires in other people's rooms. And the first time they thought it was novel, the second or third time they, they started looking <laughs> in the yellow pages for another mastering the studio. Yeah. But, but, uh, I, I really quickly, I was uh, nervous, certainly because I had been there for my whole career. At, up to that point, um, I say it would have been 15, just uh, 15 years, uh, or six, um, um, uh, i'm sorry 93 17 18 years but it's um i quickly found out that there was a lot of other opportunities out there i just hadn't uh, ever been asked and looking around so that landed in a um a, a smaller place but had the right kind of vibe we were you know interested in growth uh, classic sound was a studio that, that had, hadn't been known for pop mastering but had uh, was well known tom lazarus and, and um, uh lazarus i should say um a uh, mixing and recording engineer live principally live classical recording but was known for a lot of really great engineering uh it's just a place so i could open spread my wings and really took off that's why i did uh, some of my bigger records of, of my career really in that next three or four years
0: then you went to hit factory so that's completely different because to be in a mastering facility, a dedicated mastering facility, and then to be within the walls of an iconic big studio like that, different vibe.
1: I think I was trying on all the you know different suits going around town, so trying on the different suits until I found one that fit. Um, uh, in fact, it was very interesting. I mean, Troy uh, had great plans of building the mastering department back up to what it had been. In a heyday, uh, you know, three or four or five years earlier, and um, you know, I think I was I was honestly intending to do that. It was we to invest and in, and bring some people on board and 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 really make 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 a notice of the thing because because it, cause it had kind of languished. Chris Garinger and Tom Coyne had left, and uh, her powers and uh, you know there was there was uh, there were some young mastering engineers there when I when I went there and I, so I was coming in as a as a young senior engineer, you know. Um, with more experience than than a lot of them but life did life turned to uh, you know turned a funny corner for the germanos um, not long after i got there and and that opportunity kind of started to started to wilt yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we wrote it out until the studio was basically you know um being being closed and sold off but um uh that was my cue it was my cue to buy my gear uh, buy the gear i was using and uh, uh set out on my own you know, my first space was a shared space on 45th, 44th street, just, just a couple blocks away. And, um, um, it went really well, you know, going on, on my own at that time, I'd had enough, I had enough experience watching the businesses being run. And I, I, and, uh, I still had a thousand mistakes to make with regard to hiring people and salaries and setting rates. And, um, working you know too many hours and you know dealing with difficult clients i still had plenty of mistakes to make but i had a quite a quite a background at that point that I, I felt like i could like i could dive in and and um, how hard could it be <laughs> good attitude yeah right <laughs> well that was that clearly proven wrong very quickly but <laughs> that was that was where i started
0: and then coming back to Masterdisk as the boss
1: that was an interesting twist. Through the years, I had been hearing from the engineers that there was Masterdisk was was kind of declining, and you know, and that the ownership wasn't uh, there full time and wasn't putting the kind of energy behind it that they, that had been years before. And so, you know, um, you know, a couple of the engineers that were still there kind of you know encouraged me to get into a conversation with the owner, and one thing led to another, and I was I, I was kind of I was feeling pretty. Pretty proud of myself for having built my little mastering, uh, Scott Hole mastering, up from one room to there's no rooms to three rooms with four different engineers. And I thought we had a really good working environment, a really good crew. So my, my plan was to bring my crew over to uh, MasterDisk and try to try to replicate that. Try to try to yeah, keep that going. Um, it was it was a crazy time. I mean, I tell I tell people the story all the time. I literally got the keys to MasterDisk in June of two thousand eight. And I think I, I was so concerned with all of that was going on with the finances and all the things going on in my personal life and everything else that I hadn't really been paying attention. But I'm literally driving home with the keys after the closing, and I hear on the radio about this huge financial, you know, <laughs> doom and gloom that we were headed for. And I was like immediately struck with the what the heck did I just do? Yeah, wow. But um, I, did, I don't, you know, it would have been. It would have been too easy to quit and, and to uh, to just say it wasn't going to work. But I, I I really thought, well, we we had we had good income, we had pretty good revenue, pretty good steady revenue. We brought in a Vlado and we had a whole bunch of young engineers come through the space. But expenses just completely overrun our ability to uh, you know, to make a profit, and uh, I managed to keep it afloat, but it wasn't pretty for 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 several years. Uh, Twenty fourteen then was our. Was my downsizing and uh, officially 2015 coming up here to Peekskill, New York, uh, getting out of out of the city um, because it appeared at that point that my my clients were really scattered around the globe and and attended sessions were diminishing. Um, and when I kind of took the best of the gear and the best of the people that were involved with with what was going on at Masterdisk, um, you know, I ended up with a pretty pretty tight little ship. And so things have been okay. Things have been actually pretty good. And then uh, fortunately, with what we went through in 2020, uh, being outside of the city and being in, a, in, a, in a, my own room and uh, being completely independent has uh, you know, proved to be uh, a really good thing. So I was able to um, work solo through a, a large chunk of the uh, of the lockdown. Um taking clients that were still working depending on which part of the world was, was open at that, <laughs> at that moment, whether it was uh, the Far East or Europe or South America. Central America.
0: The mastering business in general has changed so much, especially in the last few years, where it seems like there's more indie clients than there are label clients. Do you find that to be the case?
1: I do. I think the label clients have really gradu- have gravitated to um, a few really top tier names. There are a lot of uh, 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 a lot more indie clients that. that <laughs> Um, fortunately, they, they, they really kind of need what we the, the knowledge that we have. Unfortunately, they, they also need a lot of education to understand what it is that we're doing and why. And um, I, I do an awful lot of um, re-educating um, of, uh, uh, just to get projects in the door um, so that they have a chance of surviving the process. Um, I'm not one to just kind of put a stamp on it and stand it back out and say, well, that sucks, but that's about as good as it can be. I'm, I'm really more of um, I, I really get into the nitty-gritty with the with um, I, I I really can't say younger clients but but people that haven't been doing it for that many years or have suddenly moved their uh, their work um, environment to a home or production environment any one of these that are a little less experienced um, uh, you know I'll really kind of dig in and try to find some way that I can help them make their make their mix better make make the master process work better for them
0: is there one particular problem that you keep on coming up with in those situations
1: i almost feel like we're beating we're beating this drum to death but it's still really the, the, the this mixing into or too hard into a limiter it, really the the situation just keeps coming up over and over again you know every master engineer has their own sort of that way of you know responding to it like you know why you know you gotta leave us some headroom you gotta you know we, you know we can't put the icing on the cake it's all ready for us you know <laughs> whatever kind of uh, um uh way you like to say it but, but but quite frankly um the tools of mastering don't work as well if the mix has already been been um heavily limited um and just because it's loud doesn't mean the tone's right and so if the tone controls don't work as well uh, you know, it can really be an issue, but but there's this huge caveat. If the mixer has mixed through the limiter and made his mix decisions based on the settings and the effects of the limiter, um, you know, they'll comply and take the limiter off the two bus, but then the mix sounds awful, yeah. <laughs> and then they're wondering why I can't, you know, I can't fix it for them because they really, uh, they've taken away, you know, all of the, well, they've undone the decision-making. I, I put it. Look at it this way: if you if you if you release is for digital only, you kind of can do whatever you want to do. All right? That's that's that. If you want to present a really high volume master mix, that's fine. There's definitely some compromises that go come into play there, and we can talk about them on a more subtle basis. But if you're producing for vinyl, you're really tying our hands really. Quite simply, not producing the best mix for vinyl that you could be making, and uh, it's it's really, in my opinion, uh, not as a mixer but as a master engineer. But my opinion is that is to make your mix without the limiter, and then uh, you know, add the limiter, add the loudness, um, you know, add your average level that you need for competitive, whatever. Once you've got your mix together, so that that kind of goes back to controlling the dynamics on a track by track basis, is not just relying on a stereo bus compressor to, to pull your mix together and, you know it's 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 said from a point of, of experience in like what makes a, a, a mix work well on vinyl um you know there's certainly plenty of very notable producers and mixers that will disagree with me on the process Um um, I could rattle off several names that you, I'm sure you already know. People that that really mix to a particular loudness level, and you know that's when they, their mix is done. So that's it, it, really that's really all you're going to get. That's really how it's going to turn out. But analog and the lathe is a different beast. Uh, there's always another side to it. Um, I, we can cut anything. It's just a question of whether it really turns out the best that it could have. Or there are compromises.
0: I want to come back for a second because you talked about well they, you've gone through different studios and working in different rooms how did you find that in terms of getting used to a particular room
1: i honestly have a feel the feeling like i'm i'm quite adaptable um and i don't think i i was really born with that i think <laughs> i think the practice of moving from room to room and having to adapt um gave me um you know, uh, uh, caused me to uh, become better at that skill. So, um, I have uh, recordings, masters that I've made throughout the years that are kind of my go-to, they're my 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 um, my baseline. It's kind of an interesting uh, eclectic group of songs because I have a really wide range of styles of clients that I work with, and so it's it's not a sound. It's more like. Um, it's more like uh, extremes. I have a a master that was done for Edie Backell that has more bass on it than anything else that I've ever done. And that really, and I know how that sounded in the room. I remember how it sounded in the room that I was familiar with. And it sounded like it was a little bit ready to blow up. It had so much round bottom, but it was mixed to one inch analog. You know, they wanted it to be big. And they, they, and my goal there was to just, you know, leave as much bass in it as possible possible. And that's so records like that. I have another one that's got like a bright vocal that you know, will almost peel paint. And and so it's it's kind of peculiar. I can always play the stuff that sounds good. But if I'm in a new room, I want to know if it's going to tell me that the stuff that sounds questionable, I can identify I can identify what's wrong with it or what's what's right about it in, in those rooms. So it's it's a little bit different from a process of moving um, like uh, uh, as a mixer moving from room to room, which you might have to do, you know, on a daily basis. This is um, needing to be able to hear, you know, a half dB or even a quarter dB of EQ, you know, across the majority of the spectrum and, and be able to, you know, really know you're hearing the difference. I, I guess the other way of saying it is um, I I tweak the rooms until I can do that. And I, I, I honestly, it, none of my rooms have been, uh, shot out to be roller flat or, or to be even to meet a particular standard. They're all different. Um, if you study my work uh, chronologically, though, I don't think you hear a big change. You, there are some changes from the master Disc era, especially the hit factory era, because my room was changing like the whole time I was there. Um, I was working in two or three different rooms, and I, I only for about six months did I actually have a, a room that, didn't, that that stopped changing. So that era was one that was kind of difficult to, to nail down. But on the rooms that I get comfortable with, it's about a two week process for me to get comfortable. And the ultimate test is when my clients stop asking for revisions. Oh. <laughs> when I <laughs> when I send them back something and they're happy with it, then I know I'm really getting close. Or at least I'm getting I'm within their tolerance. So then I have to then I go for a little further and tweak tweak it to my to my satisfaction.
0: Are you using the same monitors that you've used for a long time?
1: That's the key to this. I've brought the exactly the same monitors and amplifiers between all of my rooms since 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 the first iteration of MasterDisc. they They're the Sovereign uh, Duntex Sovereign two thousands that are sitting behind me. Were quite popular within certain realms of at, at mastering. Um, uh, they just become the way I hear now, so I, I I know that there's better speakers or more accurate or more even even more transparent. But this is, these are how I hear, and so I, uh, anything else would be a much longer learning curve. Uh, I I'm, I'm almost uh, almost superstitious about changing my speakers at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could see why you get used to those and you don't want to change.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm actually a little careful about changing drivers. Um, you know, if I, I try not to change a whole bunch of things all at once. I think our ear and our brain kind of fills in the gaps. If you make small changes, it will, you know, uh, it automatically sort of allow you to adjust. When you make a big change, then 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 all the doubt, and the, the, uh, uncertainty comes in, and it changes the way you hear. And <laughs> um, I don't know. What do you think? And then all of a sudden, you're not a mastering engineer anymore. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: Do you do different masters for streaming than for CD or I know, obviously you're going to do a separate one for Apple masters, but besides that,
1: well, it's a, it's a tricky one because um, we still have loudness concerns and loudness competition um, for digital downloads and people and CD or when people are combining songs from different artists into playlists, streaming, that now is, is a pretty well understood loudest normalized environment where, uh, you know, the loudest thing in is not going to be the loudest thing on playback. And it it really, you, you you lose quite a bit um, in terms of, of the the fidelity of the tune by going for the loudest, loudest kid on the block. But um, there's still a concern if, um, if a producer uh, deem's i had a recent client that deemed their playlist their acceptance into playlist was uh, playlists was going to be a significant way that new people were going to find out about this artist or about this song and um they wanted it to be the loudest thing in the playlist and so that, that was um uh, you know kind of i kind of went along with them kicking and screaming but it's because it, it, because it certainly wasn't the best sounding version of their song but well they had a goal in mind. They needed it to be loud in everyone's playlist um, uh, in a non-loudness-normalized environment. You, but that's still that's still a thing. So the answer to the question is um, uh, sometimes. Um, it, uh, generally, we're looking for something that's a good working and good, good loud that doesn't destroy the music and that is still um, um, doesn't uh, doesn't take too much of a, a penalty or loudness hit. You know when it's uh, streamed. I don't know if, it, if I'm my my approach is still universal or not. I, I know a number of people used to do it this way. The last time I checked, <laughs> last time we had a conference where everybody got together and talked about these things, but it would seem to be just a little bit over the 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 uh, the luff standard for um, for Spotify, just enough to not be too pain, you know, to to not take too much of a penalty, uh, um, but still have it be appropriately loud and competitive. Um, I'm not a big fan. to be completely honest, I'm not a big fan of, of trying to make things loud. It's I I usually uh, I'm on the other side of this trying to argue all of the positive points for for loud for dynamics and and for um, continuity and, and uh, realism. But that doesn't it doesn't float with all with everybody I work with.
0: Yeah, you know what's so funny about that? If you go to a hi-fi show or just even any kind of speaker demonstration at a conference. And the demo material that they play and what makes people ooh and ah are the things with the most dynamic range that we absolutely love, and yet that's not the way popular ears are hearing it.
1: Yeah, there's a bit of an age, um, you know, a a generational thing there, but it's also a habit, just like uh, I used the analogy the other day, it's just like too much salt. You you have no idea that you're using too much salt because um, it's it's in your diet every day, you know, Uh, until you get used to having none then again you then then after a few weeks of that then you actually can taste the salt (laughs) it tastes a subtle subtle amount of seasoning i found compression was by far more like our brains tuned it out if you heard music with a lot of compression uh, to the point where you really didn't even hear the compression anymore um, unless you reprogrammed your brain on acoustic music and uncompressed music and Um, I've I've gone through that phase a couple of times in my career where working on pop music endlessly, you know, and and then walking into an environment that was more of a classical or modern or neoclassical environment and being the, you know, being kind of politely reprimanded for, for, (laughs) for, uh, for too much compression, use of compression. And I was like, it doesn't sound like it's compressed at all. Then obviously realizing that, um, I had become immune, quite immune to it, um, the part of the, the consumer is immune to it as well, of course.
0: Yeah, with all of the very powerful mastering tools that are available to just about anybody these days, if you have a digital audio workstation, and most people not knowing you know what to do with them, and considering how powerful they are, I look at behind you and I see you have a nice complement of analog and digital outboard gear. Yeah, and that is the differentiator between what you do and what somebody could do at home. And yet they think that they can match what you do.
1: Well, it's, there's always the, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the, the feeling that it's, it's not so much the tool, it's the experience, it's the application, yeah. you know, I uh, love the old story of the carpenter and the, the finding the right spot to put the nail on the floor, and, you know, it's the board that squeaked for years and suddenly one nail fixed it you know and we had some uh, other euphemisms that were a little less politically correct but so I'll save them <laughs> but <laughs> the point being would i come up with roughly the same masters if i just worked in the box at this point it's close it's close but there are days when my when my uh, analog tools Uh, destroy the best thing I can come up with Uh, just absolutely so much better than the best thing I can come up with with plugins on certain types of music I still will work up both and kind of do a do a kind of try to do a fair analysis of the two I I tend to I I really try really hard not to talk myself into liking the plugins because they're easier and faster Um, uh, I, I really I work one up as if I was I had one client and work up the other chain as if it was for another client, and then I sit back and listen to it. Occasionally, send uh, two versions to the client to get their feedback on them. And you're usually, not telling them what the differences were, just letting them decide which approach suits them better. Um, the tools sometimes change your approach, and then of course we have um, our favorite settings on on all this gear. So it's a it, it, you, know, you kind of reach for. The Sontec EQ for a particular kind of noise, and reach for the Avalon for a certain kind of sheen or kind of of um, of uh, 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 width or depth. And so, it um, if those tools, uh, those uh, um, particular settings don't work, and you experiment well around with some other things, you reach for another tool. And sometimes it's it's easier to uh, just try something else. And I would say I'm still much higher percentage out of the box than in the box probably probably well um pretty darn close to 80 percent out out of the box even though there's projects where i'll use both there happens to be some curves in the weiss digital um that um digitally EQ that i can't really replicate an analog without artifacts so when i want to do certain maneuvers in the base or particularly one particular thing is a very broad um upper mid-range thing that's um that it really can only be done with that or with a certain high, really high end plugins. Um, uh, the, the analog gear just doesn't kind of do that. Most of the analog gear doesn't do that really, really broad uh, tone control stuff. It's more, uh, it, it, it was, was built to be more critical, more, more parametric.
0: Last question, Scott, if anybody is qualified to answer this, I think it's you considering what you've gone through in your career. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you?
1: Ooh, there's a couple. Um, the first one that jumps into my head was an, a, 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 a brother-in-law of mine that was in a, um, had his uh, Master of Business Administration and was, was working for Wall Street. And I told him that I was going on my own. He, he just said, get comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> um i had uh, that was after i told him all my plans for um having my own business and having people doing work with me and beside me was going to allow me more freedom to uh, pursue other things and and his uh, his chuckle still lives with me i still hear it <laughs> every day no one will deny um that it's a whole lot of work um it is a lot of fun though i i do get a lot of like uh, a lot out of um Proving everybody wrong on a day-to-day basis, <laughs> that I can still, I managed to pull this off, and actually, you know, have a, you know, pretty decent living out of it. Um, one thing that was fairly important to me from years ago, and one of the reasons why mastering was was appealing, is that it, it, there was some stability to it. There was some uniformity. It was so you know, a, a regular work hours type environment. Um, certainly, there are exceptions, but we weren't on the road. You know touring and and you know living out of vans and buses so i i kind of in hindsight missed some of that but uh i guess i i got my fill of that in my college uh, collegiate jazz ensemble where we <laughs> ripped up new york state from one end to the other <laughs> in tour buses for 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 three or for three and a half years but um other business advice wow it's it you know it's kind of classic stuff it's um your gut's probably telling you what's really going on. So you just got to figure out how to take your own, your own advice. Um, almost every change that I've had to make, I knew I had to make it months if not years earlier, I just was resistant to change. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. You, you probably know your, your, your reaction. You, you probably already know what you need to be doing, but it's, um, it's hard to, it's hard to convince yourself, uh, of that. Um, um i guess that maybe the last one is not every great everything that seems like a great idea needs to be pursued <laughs> 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 i tried to do a little i have really tried to do just about everything that comes across my desk and still kind of guilty of that uh i i, I still not that i want to give up anything else that i'm doing but i i don't want to be late to the late to the party so i'm i'm um always trying to kind of stay current i mean i started this career as the uh as the computer and digital, you know, um, the, the local, you know, the in-house computer hotshot, you know. And so I, um, I, I still feel like I'm trying to catch up to technology.
0: <laughs> yeah, welcome to the club.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: You can find out more about Scott at masterdisk.com. That's master, M-A-S-T-E-R, disc, disk, D-I-S-K, masterdisk, all one word, dot com, or you can go to Scott Scott S-C-O-T-T-Hull, H-U-L-L, Mastering, Scott Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at Bobby Osinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to Bobby Osinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to Bobby or find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.